Hey there, Tom. Long time no see. And long time no. Well, no, we've never we've never seen each other. We don't. Well, only in our dreams. Yeah. Well, uh, too much information, Tom. Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 67th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Tuesday, the 7th of March, 2016, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Doug Lane back to the show for a discussion about cultural Marxism, an argument about worker-controlled workplaces, and some thoughts on what we can learn from the Incas. This week, we have one new iTunes reviewer, probably not bees, and two new monthly subscribers, Alex W and Sean L to thank. Very much appreciated. So, without further ado, the interview. If you're looking for the kind of most sophisticated and and, uh, intellectual and interesting book on David Bowie, I really think we got it. So that's why we're 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 focused on David Bowie. But it was an odd thing because, you know, my first reaction hearing about David Bowie's death was to go, oh my God, that can't be. That's gotta be wrong. Uh he's an immortal, right? I mean this is this is a spaceman. He's not he can't be dead. Yeah, he looked great and well I mean lately he looked he didn't look thirty. He didn't look sixty. He he looked like David Bowie. He, he <laughs> And so, yeah, so I was, and I was sad, but I was mostly shocked. And then immediately I thought, oh, wait a minute. I could make some money out of this. <laughs> I may have inherited some money. <laughs> so so um, I started rubbing my hands together and then listening to David Bowie songs. And um, yeah, so we've been thinking about David Bowie and talking about, and that's what's going on in Zero Books. But overall, it's, I really like working for Zero Books. And I hope next year, the second year, with me uh, as the publisher will be even better and more exciting because I'm going to be it's going to be more the things I pick this this next year than it than it was last year. The big one for is um, the one you sent my way from um, Michael Roberts. Oh, that's coming through. Yeah, that's the one I'm most excited about. Probably the big book on the declining rate of profit. So so uh, yeah no I uh, you know I called this meeting to talk about cultural Marxism. And then since then, my mind has been scattered in a, a million pieces, a million different directions. And so I'm, I'm almost uh, not sure what the hell I want to talk about, but um, we'll see how it goes. I, I don't have a clue either. Um, it's so busy. So let's have a look at the, will we read the email you sent and see what it says? <laughs> okay, great. I'll, I'll read it here. And let me see. Uh, discuss cultural Marxism. Last night we, uh, we listened to a podcast I did with Varn on cultural Marxism and today I'm thinking that the use of this term is more significant than we even thought originally. The liberal and conservative side of today's society agree about the limits of human power and what can and cannot be accomplished and all the debates revolve around how best to manage what is. The right wing with its embrace of free markets and traditional values embraces the realm of economics and some aspects of state power is the most just aspects of society or the left turns to those left out exploited oppressed to justify their projects of reform and redistribution the right imagines that equality and freedom could be achieved if the barriers to the economy were removed while the left imagines state power perfected the reason cultural marxism is such a hot button for the right is because they 
perceive these interventions from the left as being responsible for the imbalances and inequities they find. The right imagines that there is already a culture of freedom to be found in the marketplace. The left, meanwhile, imagines the market can be controlled politically and that any and all inequalities to be found in the market are the result of disavowed political decisions. Both sides are cultural warriors, only for opposite reasons. Neither have much to do with Marx. <laughs> right. There you go. So, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm surprised I wrote that. I think that's <laughs> that, that sounds right to me. Doesn't it sound? I mean, let me start out by telling you what's going on with me today. I am going to be going to a science fiction convention in March. And I have been to these before, but it has been a decade, I think, since I went to my last science fiction convention. And... I've been asked to maybe be on some panels and select panels to take part in. And I'm going through the list of panels and I find a, a, a section called culture. And um, I think, oh, this is, yeah, culture. Okay. Uh, maybe there'll be something for me here. And um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a weird mix. It's, it's fat acceptance, which might be good for me, but uh, not something I really want to embrace fully for myself. Um, not yet. I, I I've got an ex I've got an elliptical machine now I'm working on it and then um, there's a one on polyamory one says cosplay is not consent these are you know I don't know one by one you could debate with the ideas in them and they're fine but they all seem of a piece you know it's basically I don't know some there's a very hectoring tone to the list of the cultural panels and I realize well this is this is, I mean, if you're a right winger and you go to this, you would just say, oh, the Marxists, the cultural Marxists are taking over the commit. Look, look what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's so, it's just like a, like an onion article kind of list of things. Like, does dressing like a unicorn give a man the right to fat shame you? Something like <laughs> that, that. That's like the title for, for one of the panels. And so I realized that at a science fiction convention where we're supposed to, the idea of science fiction is to be looking into the future, all you've got in terms of culture, there's other categories, but what you've got in terms of culture is this sort of culture of resentment or complaint. And it, yeah, it fit quite snugly in with this kind of idea of redistribution of power within this system being the primary problem for the left. So this term cultural Marxism, to me, that kind of sounds like a, a kind of like a slanderous tone that the right would use. What, it what, is. What's their origin of this term? I, I don't know precisely. I think I've seen some like YouTube video of crazy right wing conspiracies theories on, on cultural yeah, Marxism. Right, right. I don't know when or how it was picked up by the right as a term. I know what the justifications for it are, though, and they're not entirely unfounded justifications for using the – like, basically, the simple way to look at it is it's the beginning – since the World War II uh, and uh, the failure of the Soviet Union before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Marxist left has moved into cultural analysis with the Frankfurt School and away from economic analysis – so cultural Marxists are, are those Marxists who um, aim at uh, understanding the culture of capitalism rather than the economic foundation of it. One, one reason it exists is just because there were barriers to successful revolution 
And one idea might be that those barriers were cultural barriers. And we had to understand the culture of capitalism or bourgeois culture in order to understand how it maintained its hold on workers and on everyone in, in the capitalist society. So the idea that the, why the revolution worked in Russia, say, and it didn't work in Germany was culturally there was something different about the setup of society in Germany. And <clears throat> that's why it failed. Right. Adorno and Horkheimer did a lot of uh, writing and research on the authoritarian personality and uh, all sorts of cultural analysis. Some of it's quite good and interesting, like the books, uh, the, the culture industry. Um, it's really interesting. But one of the things that the original cultural Marxists were interested in was seeing how the economic foundation of capitalist society influenced and directed the cultural production of a society. I think over the years that that emphasis has been lost, especially as it's been taken up by the university and mostly like communications and literature departments. You've got people who are um, interested in cultural analysis without any reference to economic, the economics of Marxism. I'm thinking about people like Judith Butler or maybe even Habermas, but other theorists that rather than trying to show a connection between what we call on the Marxist left, the base of society and the superstructure and seeing how superstructure fits with the base, they are simply looking to decode the superstructure and determine the logic that's in place there. So, you know, you've got a lot of ideological critique and, and, and emphasis, you know, in like science fiction circles, emphasis on how are certain characters treated on television programs or in novels or movies and what kinds of ideological assumptions are at play when female character or black character is depicted as a certain way, in, in, in a certain way, in these different stories and what kinds of structures in the genre are in place and that, that kind of thing. But, the, you know, there, it it's, can go deeper than that, but the, on the surface level, that's where this ends up. It's um, an analysis of power relations, maybe, as they're acted out in fiction. By the way, I, I pitched this, like, an idea of writing about this to Jacobin and was quickly rejected. <laughs> you said in the email here that the right think that if the economy was freed up from you know, regulation or whatever that are or, or from government in, intervention, it would free up the economy and the, the left think that, you know, there's problems with imbalances and inequities. You say that neither have much to do with Marx. Why, why do you think they don't have anything to do with Marx? Okay, well, the primary thing is because Marx critiques the econ economic system itself rather than the political forms in which that, the, that economic system is managed. So, you know, if you are, if you're, if you're thinking, oh, the reason why there's so much injustice and crisis in capitalism, say you're a right winger, is because of people who don't deserve mortgages getting mortgages when they ought not to be because of um, liberal congressmen passing laws to force the banks to make um, loans that don't make sense. You know, you're, what, you're, what you're saying is capitalism works, but these politicians are mucking it about and they're, and they're getting in the way of it. Uh, on the other side, if you're a liberal and you say <clears throat> the problem here is that these 
workers who are getting mortgages aren't being paid high enough wages and they're not being given enough opportunities and there's uh, in some cases racism working against them and that's why uh, the banks went into crisis because these people couldn't pay their loans because they haven't the the system is you know fixed against them you're still saying without the greed uh, of the of the banks greed the greed of the employers and uh, racism capitalism itself would be fine and there wouldn't be a crisis so that's just like a hypothetical example it's actually I think a real example I think that's kind of how it, the economic crisis was debated within mainstream circles and both of those uh, accept the capitalist system itself. So essentially, these are critiques of kind of like an epiphenomena instead of they're the real core structure. Right. But then we look to, say, the Soviet Union, and they really tried to, say, deal with the system, and they ended up with a system that some would say was state capitalist. It shows how hard it is to even structurally deal with the system. You know, the problem with the word state capitalist is that it's been attached to different political grouplets. So, like, when you say, oh, the Soviet Let me Union reword it. Let me reword it. Let me reword yeah. it. Because I'm not attached to any of them. So <laughs> I say, the, the, I know, I don't, I don't even know what, what groups I'm talking about. I just happen I think to know. I think they're groups, essentially. Yeah, mostly troc groups. But so I just would say, from my understanding of Marx, the Soviet Union was still capitalist. Not, not that it was anything else, like state capitalist or, uh, you know, a deformed worker state, but I'd just say it was still capitalist. That, it, that essentially it worked using the core concept of, 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 of cap, that's capital is, is value theory. Yeah, it still worked on exploitation of labor. Yeah. And even Stalin, Stalin, I think, came out and said, you know, the iron law of value works under socialism. You know, he actually came out and said, oh, yeah, no. We have law of value in the Soviet Union as well. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not just Stalin, but like, you know, th there were theorists. That was their political theorists that said, yes, it does apply under socialism. So, like, they didn't break with the key determinant of, of, of capitalism. Right. Even, even Stalinists might have, you know, even... Even Stalinists were capitalists in one sense. <laughs> right. You know? I mean, yeah, and, and yeah. the problem with the right have is they think that they have a right with cult. They have a, they have a problem with cultural Marxism. But like the thing is, well, what you're saying, I think you're trying to say is that cultural Marxism is only kind of slightly to do with what Marx would have been talking about. You know, yeah, really, it's only by maybe historical circumstance that it's associated with Marx. You know, but Marx did have. Was it Marx and Engels had this quote about you know the ideology, the dominant ideology is the ideology of the ruling class. Right. That's essentially sounds like to me the key component of cultural Marxism. That's kind of, and then these are all just examples of it. Is it something that they talked about and then kind of worked on other stuff? Where, where does he? You work. know, I I know that quote, but um, hold on, I gotta let my cat in because she's just gonna scratch at that door and drive me crazy until I do. But would you pull up? Where's that quote from? I don't know where it's from. Let me check. Um, I'll, I'll be right back. Gotta let the cat in. I'm I'm working from home these days, and because of that, I have become the cat's servant. <laughs> and she now she pays attention to me now. Before I was just you know ignored, but now she's like, you're a central component in her existence. I have it here we, now. Okay, go ahead. 
the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas i.e. the class that is the ruling material force of society is at the same time its ruling intellectual force okay yeah that's from the german that's from the german ideology so what does that really what does that really mean like what i think what he's saying is like that you know i think we both know what he's saying but like the this idea of the cultural marxism like when marx was doing all his intellectual work you know most of it was you know das capital and most of it was economics you know that when they wrote this uh german ideology or the, sorry the german uh, ideology that it was kind of putting together their overarching ideas about how ideas and economic things influence each other and he probably mentioned in some places things that like this which would like seem to be be the seeds of cultural marxism but he did all his work in economics you know he didn't sit and do loads and loads of cultural marxism i analysis of ideology he did his his analysis nearly entirely on economic theory but i mean i I think it's important to note that um as a materialist outlook that he's trying to put forward so one way to interpret that what you just read was be to say that the ruling class or the capitalist class gets to invent the ideas of an epic an epoch that their ideas, whatever they come up with, is what sets the terms of debate and the, defines an era. But I think that Marx isn't saying that. I think he's saying that the ideas that are associated with and that support the ruling class, that have a material foundation in society, determine the ideas of, of an, an era. Say that again. Well... It you know, it's not simply that because I have a billion dollars, I get to tell people what to think. I'm limited in what I can like. Uh, I could I could have a billion dollars and I could decide I'm going to tell everybody that you know. Yeah, it's a much subtler idea. It's the idea that you have a billion dollars, you can set up five think tanks, and you can get the think tanks on television and the television, you know, in those interviews, and you can get your ideas disseminated much easier. But if that's not what he, Marx is saying. Marx is not saying that it's a matter of political power alone. It's a material power. It's, it's not simply because he has the ability to have his voice heard that gives him the ability to rule. Look, I, I could take a billion dollars and buy all the airtime I wanted and say that the, everyone should stay home from work, that work was an evil thing. And that, um, that they, you know, uh, and I could have a hundred billion dollars. And if I spend it just on advertising rather than, you know, paying people to stay home, I don't think I would be very effective in getting that many people to stay home. I might get some people to stay home, but I wouldn't just completely overturn the political system because of my ideas as a ruling class person, you know, because there was a, there'd be a, the material reality would be that people had to work in order to earn a living, regardless of what I wanted to say about it, regardless of how many newspapers I could, or ads I could buy. Yeah, but you see, in that example there, you're not the ruling class. You're one person in it. So it's <clears> not <throat> like there's a monolithic ruling class. You know, like, you know, so. I'll, I'll go further and say every single member of the ruling class could put out advertisements telling everyone to stay home, and people would still go to work. 
There might be like protests and a real outcry, but people would still, I mean, they, they wouldn't just ignore this if everyone did it. And we'd be going, scratching our heads going, what's going on? All of our bosses are telling us to stay home from work. But they would be, why are you firing us? Would be the response, not, oh yeah, we should stay home from work and go on a general strike. So you're saying the fact that they even, that they own the material stuff, it's in more. It's not just the ownership of it. It's the material combination of all these factors of production or whatever. They, yeah, see, they, in, they in fact also determine the ideology. This is where it gets tricky because what do we mean when I, we say material? Yes, well, this, think, is, this is kind of what I'm trying to get at. Like, so, if, you know, if, if you had an, uh, a factory in, run in, in, in communism with the exact same materials and machines and one run under capitalism, those things wouldn't really have any impact the materials in that scenario. Right. It's not like, it's not like that because the factory exists, <clears throat> I go to work. It's, it's because a mode of production exists. It's not simply the material stuff and it's not simply what's in our heads. Matter is the interaction in this, in this, from this way of looking at it. The material production, the material force production is not just the machinery in the factory. You know? let's, let's, let's read the quote again. The ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas, i.e. the class which is the ruling material force of society is at the same time it's ruling intellectual force. So he's talking about which class is the ruling material force. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Like if we think on a, on a practical level, like say all the people who, who, have, who are rich and own loads of corporations and shares and whatever land whatever they own like these guys and women women guys and girls guys and girls guys and girls that's a very um <laughs> sexist one isn't it they shouldn't be no, equivalent it's, yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. it's just good just call them you know uh, dudes and dames dudes and dames yeah and, <laughs> <laughs> but dudes were like cowboys so dames were uh, yeah i don't know dames that's like, not that's not right either is it yeah. i don't know who knows? Men and women that own. There we go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but women still has men in the. You know, oh, God you, damn you it. can't get away with it. Did, <sighs> did you, you know, know that in in? If uh, we could only come up with the right word for all these bitches, sexism <laughs> would be overturned tomorrow. You know all that right, in in, uh, in Irish Gaelic, uh, the word for woman is spelled M N A, Mana is what it is, and mm-hmm. the and the the male one is F I R. So it's fur. So it's like they're they're switched. So like if you're in a pub in Ireland, in Dublin or something, and you go into the toilets, they'll often have it in Irish, and the foreigners will all go into the the men will go into the women's one because they think oh, these dumb Irish have spelt in they spelt man wrong, you know. <laughs> and they see the f on the other one, they go that's definitely for females. So maybe maybe uh, the old Celts had they had their cultural Marxism started early. <laughs> This was how I broke the past Indifference Overblown confidence and ignorance It all made sense I never watched them take the test I believe It's better to inflict than to attempt relief You ask me what you need Hate is all you need Hate is all around Find it in your heart and in your way 
of society and the ruling class. Okay, so a couple of things I want to say. One is that the German ideology was written before capital. So he's working out his ideas here. And later on, the capitalists become kind of puppets of the means of production. No, that's not right. They don't become the puppets. They come, they kind of, well, they become puppets of the social relation. Yeah. So that's slightly different. Yeah, but they, you know, like, uh, right, but they're not, um, they're not inventing the social relation, but rather they're invented by it. Yes, but they're, they also have a very big interest in keeping that social relation. Sure, they do. But, you know, they do. But in fact, their interest alone don't keep the, that social relation going. If, the, if without workers, what they wanted wouldn't matter. The workers are the ones who actually embody and materialize that social relationship, not the bosses, not the capitalists. The capitalists get the profits, but they, they're not the ones making the world. Well, you can't, yeah, but you can't have a, you know, the social relation is not a one-sided thing. You right. know, it's, if know. it was just workers like matter, then we'd, you know, <laughs> you know, and under our social relation, the ruling class, the owners matter, whether we like it or not, even though we might produce everything. We can't produce it without them. Well, right. We can, actually. That's why worker co-ops can exist. But, but we can do it, and we can even do it without breaking the social relation, is what I'm saying. That, that's the weird thing, because workers' co-ops don't get beyond capitalism. We can still exploit labor. Yeah, but they, they, have a, they kind of have an inbuilt problem. It's like, like when we were talking there slightly, just a minute earlier, we said that... Um, we said that the, you said the means of production determine what the the capitalist does, but and then I said, well, it's the social relation what determines what the capitalist does. And right. what I mean by this is that that determination where you got owners and you got employees and you got the law of value working means that they're constantly trying to pay less to their workers and cut down on workers and have say more machinery than workers because you want to get a higher profit that way. On the short term, but the long term, you get your falling rate of profit, so it kind of screws you. So you're determined to do something that's not in your class interest, even though it's in your individual interest. So you're kind of you're ruled by this social relation into how they act. Right, but in a in a, in a workers' co-op, what you, what you get is that the co-op, the 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 you know the workers themselves become both the capitalist and the exploited worker, and the workers themselves are put in a position where they themselves are struggling to uh, basically pay themselves less. <laughs> they're not wanting to because they're at odds with themselves, but they want to basically exploit their own labor. You, you can't really exploit your own labor, but I think the, because, you know, you if you're exploiting your own labor, you get it back. But I, th- I think that the, the problem there is like a cultural one, you know. Let's say you, you're up in the... <laughs> 
let's think why are there not that many co-op uh, run fast food joints yeah well like if you think about it, just culturally like there are certain areas that co-op worker run co-ops tend to go into you know for, for and usually for pretty good reasons you know they want to get into organic fruit food co-ops or 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 any of these type of things but say when it comes to something like say you know you want to open up a mcdonald's competitor you know that that in in those kind of hard-nosed areas of business you'll have to make decisions as a worker co-op that's against your ethics you know so i don't think that that you could just have a workers co-op moving to replace everything because you know you will be outcompeted by some guy getting cheap. In, oh, in I, labor I do or think something. you. I do think you will be outcompeted. Probably that it isn't the best. I don't think it's the best form. But the point is not whether or not it will be outcompeted or not, but whether or not it. If we did manage to replace just theoretically all the wor- all the factories in the world with workers co-ops, would we then be beyond capitalism? And my point is that we wouldn't be. And also, I wanted to point out that you said. If you exploit your own labor, you get it all back. But that's not really true. You're, you know, you're you're paid a wage, and maybe you earn as a, a co-owner in the business, you uh, earn a dividend, or you, you know, you earn on the stock going up or something like that. But the workers do more than simply produce their own wages plus whatever the surplus is. They also reproduce the value of the of the machinery and um, you know the company really every day so what you would do as a, as a self-exploiting worker is that you would work hard enough in order to pay off all the costs of production plus pay yourself a wage plus have enough profit to reinvest and expand your business you would you wouldn't you would actually still be able to exploit yourself and if you weren't able to exploit yourself if all the all the profits I mean look a capitalist who takes all their profits and just takes it for themselves and buys, you know, mink coats and cocaine or whatever, they usually go out of business. Even the capitalists don't just take it all for themselves. They take it back into the machinery of capital, which is not their own personal stuff. I, I think when it comes to this idea of the, of the working co-ops, which is very good, you know, all all well and good, you'd still only end up, you'd still have markets and you'd still have value working in in that mm-hmm. case but even still i don't think it's even i don't think it you can say a theoretical one but i don't even think that it's even a possibility because i i, I think that why would the left not be very proactive in attacking the capitalist system this way it seems to me that they're just kind of fundamental cultural problems with it they'd have to end up being involved in so many dirty industries or unpleasant practices to try and compete that you'd never get to a place whereby you dominate an economy it just doesn't seem to me like any way a plausible way out of capitalism right i agree but let's my but my point is even if you could politically do it like you know there was just a mass like a massive revolution like we had in the soviet union and tomorrow by government decree the only way to be in business was as a workers co-op and all the uh, businesses that exist now were turned over to the workers to be co-ops. We still wouldn't be beyond capitalism. No, yes, we'd still have capitalism. We, there's a, you know that there's the American Marxist economist, is it Wolf? What, is it Richard Wolf? And he talks about, you know, 
it should be worker management, you know, is is the future, and you know, or for for socialism or whatever. And it won't it won't work because we'll it'll be like being in the Soviet Union again, except it won't be top down. It'll be better than what we have, but the law of value will still operate. You know, I just I here's here's my point about the back to the cultural Marxism thing and how the both the right and the left are stuck in this realm of culture and culture being cultural warriors. Because I think that once you start to recognize that the problem of capitalism isn't a problem of bad human beings treating other you know treating good human beings badly, whether or not you mean you know those freeloading welfare queens or the greedy capitalist bastards, when you start to realize that those that addressing that isn't going to fix the problem, you start to realize how alienated we are from our own way of operating in the world. Like we, we really don't have a good grip, even intellectually uh, often, on what it is that we're doing to make the world function. And it starts to seem like a very difficult problem, one that – and also very difficult to attach to emotionally. So because of that, uh, these other forms of protest and these other battles are much more attractive. They speak directly to your kind of lived experience now. And they seem much more viable as, as like engines for political movements. Uh, you know, how dare you shame me about my weight, bastard. And I just want to say that about, you know, to you directly, Tom. And then but also or, or you know, uh, why, why are you using food stamps and then going to, to Disneyland, you, you, you stupid cow? That kind of thing. Th- those those seem very, uh, you know, l- l- like living battles. Whereas asking the question about labor power and what really makes Vietnam a good place for capitalists and working out this conversation we just had couldn't be more boring to most people. And so – and it's not only that it's boring but also that it just is alien. It just isn't felt, you know. It isn't living somehow. Anyway, I'll stop there.
it, I was thinking before we had the conversation there that, that just today about I was watching there was a, a BBC documentary series on on different cultures that collapsed. So they had one on like the Mayans and what do you call the guys who were up in Machu Picchu? What were they called again? So anyway, all of these different cultures, there was a few of them yeah. that they did. And they had, you know, I think an archaeologist. Um, he's from the British Museum in London. But I, I, always, I was really fascinated when I was just thinking about it. When you see the people talking about the older cultures. So say like the Incas were a massive culture, you know, all the way across Western South America and uh, all the way up and down the Andes. And they had no money, right? They had no money system that they operated completely differently. There was no value system operating there, right? And they would have different, you know, some of the different cultures would have different statues and they would have different religious ideas or different structures in society that the, the ruling class would use. And you could see that there was an archaeologist there and he was able to expound this to the people in the, you know, you'd be watching it on the television and you'd say, oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Oh, I can see how they used their uh, statues and their religious ceremonies there. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then when we look at our own society, like it's just so difficult for us to see it in our own society. You know, if somebody right. talks about like, oh, look at how the way they're using advertising, like, you know, if you asked me this 10, 15 years ago, I'd look at them and go, God, you're a bit of a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Right, you know, right. it's really hard to see it when it's in front of you, and it's it's just a, it's just an amazing thing. Yeah, I it it is, and the other thing about it that that in our society that I think that we can start to see that's different from other societies, tribal societies, or or other um, civilizations that are you know more complex, is that under our society, it's not uh, the way we operate doesn't have as much to do with direct human expression it's not like the problem is the way we represent ourselves in advertising that the advertising could change overnight and be only we could just like say remember there was this great movie um with ricky gervais where everyone always told the truth it was a world where everyone told the truth and one of the scenes was the guy came out and said hi i'm the the president of coca-cola I want you to buy Coca-Cola. It does make your teeth fall out and you get fat, but it's a great product and you should buy it. <laughs> and I, we could have that world tomorrow and we would still have most of the injustices that we have, most of the really core problems that we have because we don't things don't operate directly on the level of human expression and human will. They 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 operate through this abstraction, this alienated process. And, you know, I start to sound to some people when I talk this way like I'm a spiritualist or some sort of mystic. You know, there's a uh, there's this strange energy force behind the scenes that nobody can see. And it's called value. And it has to do with money and lizards and and lizards. No, I don't think lizards are involved. It's the one time that they're not uh, that we can let them off the hook. Interesting. Yeah. Everything else. Constipation. That's the lizard's fault. But uh Value production, they, they, they're left out of the loop. I may, it maybe seemed like I'm a little too happy in this conversation considering what we're talking about. Uh, I, I, feel, I feel that as I'm talking. It's like, oh, you're having a great time, aren't you, Doug? You must be, you know, something's going on. So this is why. So tell us, what have you been nominated for then? Uh, I've been nominated for a Dick Award. It's the, uh, it's the Philip K. Dick Award 
for most significant uh, science fiction novel in paperback for the year 2015. Cool. How many get nominated for this then? Uh, this I think it can vary because uh, last year it was eight. This year it was six. Mine and a, and a bunch of other hack bullshit work that I don't even understand why they're on the list. None of those other people deserve anything. I just want to say that if somebody else wins, I'll be very upset. No, I I, I don't expect to win. There's some really good uh, and very well known writers on the list, and uh, I, I'm gonna I think it's gonna go to either uh, Marguerite Reed or. Um, the woman who wrote the, the book Revolution should go to Revolution. Doesn't that sound right? That sounds right. But I'm very excited, it, mostly because of all the little awards that there are in genre fiction. The only one that ever meant anything to me was the Philip K. Dick Award, not because it, it's a very significant award. I don't, I don't know how significant it is, but I, he's, he's one of my most favorite authors, Philip K. Dick. So that's an award that you know rings like... That's the only one I ever wanted, kind of for silly reasons, because I liked him so much. If you go to Amazon, you can see people are buying the list, you know? So, like, I look at my book, and it says, people who bought this also bought Marguerite Reed's book, Archangel and uh, uh, Revolution. Or they also bought um, uh, Nexus, which is another book that's nominated, and uh, Revolution in your book, or whatever it is. So, yeah, they're selling a bit more now. And I imagine if uh, whoever wins will probably get a little bump from that, too. But I don't think it's going to be like suddenly I'll be able to quit my job at zero. And Why would you do that anyway? You're starting the revolution. Right. Of course I wouldn't do that. My God, bastard would quit working on the revolution just when he got some money. <laughs> that would be a capitalist bastard. <laughs> That's right. I was going to say a fat bastard, but I'm not going to say that again. <laughs> like Thomas the Tank Engine, the fat controller. <laughs> Right. Speaking of cultural Marxism, I, uh, there was a, I was on holidays last summer and my friend, his kid, had some Thomas the Tank Engine books. And one of the, one of the books was about strike breaking. It's about scabs, about how the fat controller got in when some of the carriages or the truck or trains were complaining about their working conditions that he locked them up and he got some scabs into their job and then after a week they came out and they worked for him and they said sorry and apologized so that is <laughs> so literally one of the books that's Tom the end? Tank Engine. they just yeah. apologize yeah they're going they come back to work and then they're kind of happy again <laughs> that's uh wow thomas the tank engine who would have thought I, I Ringo Starr and Ringo Starr. Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. So, well, you know, it is true that the the ruling ideas of every epoch uh, reflect the the ruling ideas of the ruling class. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Doug, for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and The Delgados, with All You Need Is Hate. You also heard The Dramatics, with What You See Is What You Get, and you're now listening to Teen, with All About Us. 
thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. I just got to say, when I did call you a fat bastard, I I I I didn't know you were listening. 